What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the world on Drugs Wide Pod, baby. This is Steve Fury, and we got another b- 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 banger, folks. This week, we got the Cornbread Mafia. I mean, where are we finding this stuff, Steve? How do you even do it? The answer is simple. Uh, switch it up this week. We got my guy, Jim Higdon, at Jim Higdon, H-I-G-D-O-N. Nailed it there. Uh, he has a journalism degree from Columbia, and he wrote the book on the Cornbread Mafia, available on Amazon and any independent bookstores. In case you hear this, you want to learn more. Uh, he actually also started a CBD company, small amount of THC. You can ship it anywhere, at Cornbread Hemp on Instagram and CornbreadHemp.com. Steve, let's get a little synopsis of what's happening in this thing. So the Cornbread Mafia is essentially you think about moonshining people back in the prohibition except they do it with weed and they start branching out in a bunch of different uh, states all around kentucky i never knew kentucky could go grow weed let's be honest okay i'm from california i thought only we could do it in like afghanistan apparently not the case they can do it and they did it well they did it very well they grew a shit ton of weed some of the largest seizures by uh the government ever they they were talking about tons that they got and honestly, this is a great story. It goes from the beginning of kind of the the culture of backwoods, kind of Kentucky, small town of Meridian, I believe. That's where Jim's from. That's where why he got so involved and was able to get such great information about this story. I'm um, sorry, my cat's sitting on my fucking H4 recorder. But it's a good one, man. Uh, he tells it to me. I don't say anything. So if you know me personally or you're following me on Instagram, DM me. Tell me if you, th- if you enjoy uh, someone else telling me a story. A lot less work I got to do, a little bit harder to find the people, but Jim did a great job. He's definitely knowledgeable in the situation, and it was a pretty fun episode. So if you want to learn more about the Cornbread Mafia after you hear this podcast, check out his book called The Cornbread Mafia on Amazon.com, and I would suggest go to at Cornbread Hemp or CornbreadHemp.com, pop a couple CBDs, you know, get them. It's almost the same. I think the weed comes from Kentucky still, so it's the same kind of stuff that these guys would have been growing so that's pretty fun also want to give a shout out to my guy patrick grazewich g-r-a-z-e-w-i-c-z he is uh one of our researchers for the pcc episode i never gave him a shout out felt bad also also want to give a shout out to my guy dr joe hoffswell um we linked up two great minds linked up in uh, nashville and i forgot to talk about it he saw me bomb my dick off so he was probably you know Thinking, hey, Steve Fury opened up for Burt Kreischer when I saw him. Very funny. Comedy store guy. Very funny. Doing well on A. Then I went there, called him Knoxville. Everyone hated my guts. Oh, what else can I say? Uh, that's about it. You know, this beginning of this one's going to be pretty quick. What have I been up to? You know, just trying to get better. Working on a couple new stories. Some bits. Just seeing what the next thing can do. Waiting to see if I can... Uh, you know, get some dates from some big guys, start going on the road again. This week I'll be going to San Francisco this weekend. So that is the weekend of the 24th um, to the 30th almost, I believe, or whatever. The 24th weekend I'll be uh, all over the Bay Area. So if you want to check me out, check me out there. Other than that, been good, man. I had a little kickback, a little potluck for a couple friends, about 10 of us the other day, all vaccinated. Don't get mad. Don't yell at me. Um, it was fun, you know. I got, uh, so since that one, I think I talked about that show I did in Sacramento where I got way too drunk. 
since then, I haven't really drank and hard alcohol and uh, just been doing beer. And the other night, I went back to hard alcohol for the first time and Jesus, I don't know, whenever that was, three, four weeks ago. And uh, I think I'm going to be done off hard alcohol for a while. You know, I just don't think it's fair that beer makes you fat. You know what I mean? It's like I either get fat, but I don't make any mistakes or say anything stupid. Or I drink hard alcohol and I might puke. (laughs) So that's it. Oh, man, I was so fucking hungry, hungover on Sunday. Oh, my God. I haven't been that hungover in, I don't know, I puked the next day twice. That's what I was doing. One was, a, one was a, I woke up, felt a little queasy, had the flaming Hot Lay's Potato Hot Chips. Um, they tasted pretty good, you know, for a little morning uh, hangover relief. Then I puked them up. Let me tell you this. If you think, um, <laughs> if you think they're spicy coming down, wait till they come up googly boogly that shit hurt um and then the rest of the day felt pretty sick and that had a show called smd sunday morning digital you guys should check that out too that's on instagram completely free my buddy has a sketch show he's starting a bunch of good sketches on there very high um level of uh, quality funny stuff and um i went to his show did stand up on it was very good but i was going in and out of wanting to throw my brains up and I was like, okay, I'm going to go outside. Then there's this little taco stand. I thought, you know, street tacos, hangover cure, to me, made sense, right? I guess if you're from somewhere else, maybe not. But, you know, greasy tacos. Um, went out front of the taco place, felt a little queasy. Turned my eyes, just started puking all on the ground. Bile. Water and bile. Um, and guess what? There's a lot of people in line, and they were freaking the fuck. They were freaking the fuck because <laughs> this guy just walked up and started puking in the dirt. And I'm not, I'm not like a chill puker. I'm like a lot of noise, a lot of uh, 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 going on. Then I puked and then I kind of stood up like I was going to go back in, in line. And everyone was just like, uh, hey, could you get the fuck out of here, guy? Could you... uh?" never come back here again you're disgusting so yeah so we did that um other than that you know nothing really too new it's just another week you know trying to get better trying to get trying to do what i can do get some more shows you know the comedy this fucking delta thing man it's just making it hard to not even like get the shows there's just not shows to be had because any alt show, which is a show that's um, alternative to a comedy club, well, that's not also a bar show. All those little venues, like the Coffee Shops, the little Virgils, the those ones, they all uh, got closed down because of COVID. So once they were closed down, the alt venue shows had nowhere to go. On top of that, um, you know, I'm a very liberal guy. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, if you, I'm doing a show about criminals, and most of the time I seem to take their plate, <laughs> their side, even though they're for sure the bad guys. Um, you know, and also the alt guys, those are kind of like the, you know, the Brooklyn kind of comedians, you know, girl with bangs, the glasses. Wo- I mean, I'm pretty woke, but just, you know, whatever. 
um, they are like uber liberal to where they're like not going to go inside to do a comedy show. So then their shows aren't going for that too. So it's just like really killing the scene for spots and just killing everything. So, you know, luckily I run my own shit. Uh, Tomorrow I'll be going to Bear City, my Wednesday show in Long Beach. One of the shows that if you live in uh, L.A. area or definitely Orange County, you got to check out one of the best shows in Southern California. Later that night I'll be doing the Comedy Store. Uh, Thursday I'll be on in Ontario, California at the Improv. That'll be good. I'm going with my man Craig Conant and Darius Bennett. And then this weekend I'll be in the Bay Area, man, just trying to get this, this story. You know, man, I'm, so I'm a very set-up punchline guy, okay? You know, I write something, ba da ba da ba ba da ba and then it hits a big punchline. I've been trying to do stories now, you know, because once you understand how jokes, joke structure works, it's like a language. The better you get at it, the more I can use it in other different ways. So I've been trying to run it on stories. But stories take a long time to practice, okay? Whereas, like, if I go up and do my set, Let's say I do it at the comedy store because that's where I'm getting most, well, not most of my sets actually, probably not. Um, I get like one or two a week there. I go up and I do my story. If it was a new joke I wrote, that takes 15, 25 seconds. If it's a new story, that takes, you know, three to four minutes, five, six minutes. And one, that took up a large portion of your stand-up time up there. Two, if you're bombing with a story, you got to stay with it for a while. But that's just comedy, man. You got to be able to bomb. So I've been doing that. Story's okay. It's definitely shocking. Um, I don't know if in a good way or a bad way people seem to like it. But, you know, we'll just keep going. It's definitely got the beats to be funny. I just need a really large punchline. And honestly, the only way I can really get to that is uh, repetition going up more doing it more so that's why i decided to go to san francisco this weekend bust out a bunch of shows i think i got six in three days driving up friday driving back sunday the drive is about six hours but i've done it in my life probably over 150 times 32 years old don't bite me little bitch fucking cat went on my lap and she's normally pretty good when i scratch her but sometimes she's just like scratch my head you dumb idiot Oh, she's so fucking shedding so much. So this drive is about six hours, right? So it's not bad. But I've done it so many times that I can do this thing where I just turn my brain off to where it doesn't even running anymore. So I just I kind of turn it off right at the end or right when I enter the grapevine. And then kind of right where in the five splits into, I believe, the 80 or then, yeah, the 80 when it goes into San Francisco and the other one goes to Sacramento. That's kind of when I wake up. I enjoy the flight, man. Go get some in and out. I kind of like relegate in and out to whenever I'm on the road. So it makes going on the road pretty fun. Other than that, man, it's going to be a good weekend. I'm happy to do the show. This one is a good one. So if, you, if, you, if you're if you a fan and you follow me on Instagram, please feel free to DM me. Um, and tell me what you think. If, if you like when other people are telling me stuff. If you like it a little more when I do it. Because the jokes definitely aren't on this one that hot. Um, and the reason last week, uh, the audio was a little messed up on the, um, Kyrie episode. He just was talking too far away from the mic. And, you know, a lot of this stuff in theory will be, will be, um, ironed out once we get into the comedy store studio when I have a bunch of like techs, a bunch of people running shit. But, you know, I am just a dumb, simple man who knows nothing and who is a garbage person. And so I do this on my own and I'm not really that good at it, but 
I think that thing's got legs. You guys like it. The numbers keep going up. We're getting around 700, which, hey, guys, that really feels good. Thank you very much, you know. Um, if you do like the podcast, drop a comment if you're new. Go to the iTunes, put in a comment, say something cool. Um, if you want to know what these guys look like, um, some of the people I talk about, you can go to my YouTube page. I do that is completely a video. It normally comes out about a week or two after the podcast. Or, you know, I've been doing the Wad Pod synopsis on my Instagram. Normally, I'll show pictures of all the people needing to be talked about. This one is an interesting one. I'm not 100% sure how to do the Wad Pod synopsis for this because I can't. Um, I didn't really tell the story, but I think I can still do it. So, man, this is a fun episode. We got my guy Jim Higdon um, talking about the author of The Cornbread Mafia, available on Amazon and independent bookstores at Cornbread Hemp if you want to maybe get some of them CBDs and pop that little bad boy and chill out while you're listening to the episode. Um, the episode is done on Zoom. Um, he does not have another recorder. He lives in Kentucky. So, and he's not, normal people don't have audio recorders, uh, but his sounds pretty good because he talked into his MacBook Pro, he's a new MacBook Pro. I put on AirPods because one time, if you, if you remember the Malik episode, I uh, didn't put in AirPods and while he was talking everything, the mic picked it up so I couldn't use my H4 uh, for my Zoom recorder. Zoom recorder is not the Zoom on your computer, it's this little thing that people do podcasts off of and like news stories and stuff like that so this time i put the headphones in and then the fucking thing just didn't record i don't know what i got i got an hour and a half of just blank signal so it's going to be done off the uh zoom which you know it's honestly not that bad i listen to podcasts when it's done off zoom he sounds a little better than me because the macbook pro recording is pretty good i would have liked to uh, maybe next time i'll know i can listen to the ones in the ears but then if I'm going to record, have it off the MacBook Pro. That way, if anything breaks, the MacBook Pro will still pretty work. But, but, you know, I'm not a perfect man. If you knew me in school, I probably cheated off people most of the time to get anything I got. So chill, dog. So I want to give a shout-out to Jim Higdon. Thank you guys for there. If you want for uh, checking the show out and being fans and coming back every week, I really appreciate it. Also, some people have been asking me, what, what when does this show come out? Um, it comes out weekly. So... It's always Monday to Tuesday after the last one. That's all I can say. I can't give you an exact date because, I don't know, man. It's just hard. I think when we get into the Comedy Store studio, I'm going to be banging out one or two a week for like a month or two. So we'll get really caught up on that one. So uh, what's with some stuff I could ask you to check out? Check out the Geffen documentary. It's on Netflix. He's the guy who uh, started Asylum Records and Geffen Records. I thought it was pretty cool. You can really see how, how cool he was until this... This woman broke his heart that he that he helped her out since the beginning, and then she just fucking left him. And then he kind of turned into a dick, but he's a rich dick, so worked out for him anyway. Uh, check out Sunday Morning Digital, my buddy's sketch team, Richie Doyle's sketch team. Um, and thank you, everybody listening. Check out the – keep listening to the podcast. Give me a comment. If you want one of the Wad Pod shirts, they're pretty sick. Venmo me 25 bucks to at Steven, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, dash Fury, F-U-R-E-Y, on Venmo with your address, and I'll send it to you. They're going pretty good. I still got a few left. Um, we're going to have some big changes when we go into the uh, new podcast studio. I might uh, change up some branding a little bit, so check out the shirts. Get them. Stay safe, everybody. Let's get this shit done with. I love you.
This is the Cornbread Mafia with me, Steve Fury, and our guest, Jim Higdon. Bye. Well, Jim, nice to meet you, buddy. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, I'm excited to finally talk to you, man. Our, our mutual friend, Richie, has spoken highly of you, and he definitely kept talking about uh, the story you're going to tell me. Uh, I listened to uh, your uh, your episode on the Yakuza, and it was entertaining to me. And I got like I learned I learned about uh, more about the Yakuza than I than I I didn't realize I had deficits in my understanding of Japanese organized crime, and I got uh, got something out of it. So that was really interesting to me. Yeah, it's definitely a weird podcast because uh, people are going like, "Why are you doing this?" Because you know, some of the gangs I'm uh, investigating are pretty local and. Uh, current so that was yeah, a little scary you're going around and pissing off a, a rogues gallery of bad people who have yeah, no no concerns about about ruining your life <laughs> no and also with my job being comedy i post where i'm going to be every night so oh it's not yeah <laughs> it's not the smartest thing like i got a i got a couple of these gangs coming up like I'm reading the street names. I'm like, this is three blocks away from my house. Hopefully these guys don't have fucking <laughs> MacBooks and uh, Apple podcasts. I was in, uh, I was at uh, journalism school at Columbia. And before I, before oh. I started working on my cornbread mafia book, but my training to get myself to working on cornbread mafia, uh, my last stop was Columbia J school. And I was working on a story about a murder on the um, Lower East Side um, involving um, of New York in New York. Yeah. Uh, involving a conversation, a, a confrontation between um, some uh, Kosovo individuals from Kosovo and individuals from Albania. Uh, I just did an Albanian podcast. That's the one I did last week. Right. So, uh, so like, like a, like a 2 a.m. chance encounter and a pizzeria on the Lower East Side, some shit went down because um, some, uh, uh, some Eastern European uh, politics sort of spilled over uh, after the club. Um, and I'm working on this story and my, my professor was like, uh, be careful with those Albanians. I'm like, ah, it'll be fine. Uh, and I should have been more careful about the Albanians. Yeah, I think that could be that should be something that's told to every kid growing up in anywhere. Be careful about the Albanians. <laughs> yeah, I just did a whole thing on them. I just learned about the pizza connection. You heard about that one? Uh, Albanian thing? No, tell me. So the pizza connection, the reason why there's so many pizza places in New York is because in the 70s and 80s, the Sicilian mob was making them as fronts for bringing in drugs. And like mm. human trafficking and then i think it was like 1986 the fbi came down and and squashed a bunch of them um and the case took like 17 months like up until that time that was the longest uh case that in uh, the american judicial system that they've had and then uh that's why there's so much pizza there and that's why like sometimes you'll go to to like new york and be like how do you people you base your business off this shitty ass pizza and then it's like oh no you're you have like you're pushing cocaine out the back it's always a front. The answer is it's always a front. Like, like, why are there seven mattress stores on this corner? Because they're all fronts. Yeah, who's buying mattresses anymore? It makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense. Okay, Jim, why don't you... Uh, so normally, I've never had a guest who knew more about the subject than I do. 
I normally, you know, just ramble on into someone's ear and hopefully to tell them. If you want to tell me, normally uh, what we do is we kind of do a, a like a small thing in the beginning so people can know what we're about to talk about. Huh? And then you just kind of tell me the story as much as some of a timeline. And yeah. then uh, I'll just ask you questions and we'll go in from there. Beautiful. So cool. what I'll do is I'll give you the uh, the elevator pitch version, yeah. uh, the, the super short version. Um, and I'll let you uh, prompt me with a question after that. And then I'll get into it from like, uh, the beginning of time to present day. Fant, that's literally what we do here. Thank you very much. So um, I wrote a book about the cornbread mafia. The cornbread mafia is, according to the federal government, the largest domestic marijuana syndicate in American history. Uh, it was headquartered in my hometown in central Kentucky. Um, it was 70 men arrested on 30 farms in 10 states, between 1985 and 1989 with what police say was 200 tons of cannabis. Now, nice. Now this is this is police weight, right? Cop weight. So we, yeah. we, we don't we don't believe that it was 200 tons. Um, it was a modest fraction of 200 tons. To give you an idea of how they get these numbers, in one farm in Minnesota where they arrested 20 guys from one place in Kentucky. Um, mm -hmm. um, in uh, October of 87, uh, they found the police um, w started weighing the dump trucks. They weighed one dump truck load of cannabis that they confiscated from the farm. And they multiplied that dump truck load by 62, which was the number of dump truck loads of cannabis they took off the farm. Mm -hmm. And then so much cannabis remained that they took that times 62 number and they doubled it and they got to 90 tons. So uh, in a sentencing hearing, one of the police officers told the judge or admitted to the judge that the amount of cannabis in his uh, words was inconceivable. Um, so it was just a lot. It was more than he yeah. had ever contemplated. Well, I feel like a lot of times when uh, when cops talk about drugs that they seize or either one, the numbers and the weight are too high, or a lot of times they'll go street value. So they'll take like, you know, you could get an ounce of cocaine for maybe 1200 bucks, but they're going to price it out to what you'd sell it as like per gram. So then they're like, this ton, this thing was 140 million. It's like, well, the guy probably was going to buy it for a couple hundred thousand and you just kind of went there. So here's two questions about that so far I got. Number one, probably the weight wasn't all buds as well. I'm guessing they just ripped right, the whole plant. Probably even roots and dirt. Like exactly, yeah. it's nonsense there. Number two, actually, I got another one after that. So I used to grow a lot of weed. I was I dealt drugs for most of my life in California, though. Um, I stopped when comedy started getting pretty good for me, and then I. Uh, so growing weed, we have the Emerald Triangle here. It's uh, the Humboldt area and stuff like that because our climate is so well for it. I don't see the humidity in Minnesota, in Kentucky, being good for marijuana. Was this indoor? No, it was all outdoor, sun-grown, rain-fed. Interesting. Interesting. Um, okay. So Kentucky sits on the 37th parallel. So if you draw a line from Kentucky, or the, you know, the bottom, bottom end of Kentucky is the 37th parallel, uh, that's the same line that creates the uh, uh, north-south boundary between Colorado and New Mexico. It crosses California in a line that goes Fresno to Santa Cruz. And then you take that across the Pacific Ocean, it crosses the Hindu Kush uh, mountain range 
on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan where uh, indica strains originate. So the light cycles in Kentucky are ideal for cannabis. Yeah, 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 that's the same thing up north. That's why you got to grow it on sir. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I didn't even know you could do that. I, it, outdoor growing always felt was pretty easy. When you go inside, there's so many things that can go wrong. Oh my God, I lost so much money there. I used to get these things called little spider mites. Spider oh mites. Fucking spider mites have taken tens of thousand dollars of me in my lifetime. You just get one little one in there, you go for the weekend, you set your shit on automatic, you come back and they're just eating everything. There's no way to get rid of them. The reason outdoor grows are so great is because you have the predators that eat other things that are going to eat your weed. So you could have Uh-oh. like other ladybugs, like ladybugs. Yeah. Whereas like indoors, when you, I mean, when people say you got to like uh, organically, like uh, keep bugs off. So they just put out ladybugs on your shit. It's like, it'll just fly away in a few seconds. I knew one guy that would uh, glue the ladybugs wings so that they couldn't get away. And so we just have like these really sad, fat ladybugs. On his butt. It's kind of a sad thing. Behind it. Okay. So, okay. I like it so far. So that was a great, a great question. I definitely didn't know that weed could grow over there. I was just in Nashville actually last weekend. Very interesting town. I've never been to the South before. Um, very white. Never seen that before. Being in California, it was very one of the whitest places I've ever been in my life. Um, well, look, there's good black folks in Nashville too. It's just unfortunately Nashville is incredibly segregated, uh, like most Southern and East Coast places are. Um, you know, don't. Uh, don't rule out the good black folks in Nashville just because you didn't see them when you were on Broadway. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I was only at a comedy club, and I don't think they wanted to see the guys I was opening for. Um, okay, so who are the people? Are there? Was this like a, the Cornbread Mafia? Was this like a centralized kind of pyramid scheme kind of uh, organization, like one guy at the top? Or is this just kind of a bunch of country white people growing weed that they all just bumped together? So... This is an ongoing question in my mind. In my in my books reporting, in six years of book reporting, I determined that it was not um, a strict hierarchy, that it was more of a marketplace, um, family-based. Um, of, these also, 70, of these 70 guys that were arrested on the record uh, from this particular time frame, and more on both ends of this, but just like the federal government was focused on 85 to 89, but we're talking about a, a lot, lot of people. That's a lot of people. And there's even um, more than that? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, uh, uh, more before 85, more after 89, and also more that never got caught. Um, because of these 70 that were busted, none of them talked. And all of them, except for one, were Roman Catholic by, by heritage and birth. So we've got country Catholic. That's guy. not common, right? Is that common? Country Catholics down there? It's not common, but it's yeah. definitely a thing. So oh. in central Kentucky, there's this vein of Catholicism um, that in the in the rural area uh, uh, south of Louisville, where I'm from, and there's monasteries and convents. Um, and um, it's this particular uh, culture of Catholicism in the country in central Kentucky. It corresponds with the bourbon uh, production area, right? Like Bourbon Irish, yeah. coming from um, n- you know iron, right? non-teetotaling, um, uh, not Baptist, not Protestant Catholic yeah. uh, heritage. Mm-hmm. So the Catholic area and the in the in the in the distilling area of Kentucky 
kind of overlay each other to simplify things to give you an idea of where we're talking about. Uh, and so my investigation when I started this thing, like I grew up in this town, I knew a lot of these people who were who were uh, caught up in it. I went to school with a lot of their children. Did um, people in the town know that these guys were growing shit tons of marijuana, or they they kept it pretty uh, in house? You know, like all of a sudden, country boys driving Corvettes, like everyone kind of knew something was up. Uh, but it was a sort of community where everyone was like, "Well, he's a good guy." Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there was some animosity, maybe, but no one was going out of their way to tell on anybody uh, because there was this um, construct in my community that you could break man's law without violating God's law. You could be a member of the community while also being an outlaw uh, because I like that. because of the Catholic culture uh, and because of prohibition. So 13 years of prohibition from 1919 to 1933 uh, instilled in this community the sense that that not all laws are great laws and you can break a law and support your family and still be an okay person. Plus at uh, the time, at the time, weed was probably close to like alcohol was during the prohibition where it was like, this is illegal, but should it really be illegal? And people probably were, maybe thought it was a little easier to more uh, palatable. And when it got started, so, so the grandsons of prohibition get, get drafted into Vietnam. They go off to Vietnam in Vietnam, they realize what the value of cannabis is to other people in their platoons from Chicago and New York and New Orleans and California and come home with the knowledge that this stuff is valuable. It's growing wild in the fence rows and behind their grandparents' barn because Kentucky was growing hemp during World War II for the war effort. So there's living memory of cannabis cultivation in the farming community because of hemp for victory in the forties. And all they had to do was grow it and not get caught and not getting caught was part of their moonshining heritage and tradition. And that hadn't gone away either. It was very rural, right? Very rural. Uh, and they had these built in nationwide connections coming back from Vietnam, like members of their units were spread all over the place. And so they just rocked and rolled like 1970, 1971, they were growing it by the acre before anyone had any clue what was going on. Like they That's were pretty awesome. I mean, yeah. So like, I'm, I do know like when, um, once uh, police started having the air technology where they could tell the tamps, uh, plants temperatures. So they had to, uh, so over in Mendocino over there, they would start mixing in different plants to kind of hide the thing. But in the seventies, I'm guessing there's probably not that many air raids going over looking to see what kind of weed it is. So you can go as crazy as you want when there's not the kind of technology to stop you. So the first helicopter that the Kentucky State Police flew for marijuana eradication suppression was in was in September of 1980. They flew it over Marion County, Kentucky, which is where we're talking about. And in one weekend found 45 acres of marijuana. Yeah, I mean, when you don't know it's coming, it com comes from above. It'll get you pretty easily. <laughs> Boom. Like you can hide it from the road, but all of a sudden yeah. they, had, they had an eye in the sky and it was a totally different thing. How do they start hiding it? Well, they just started running from the helicopter. So after 1980, they started diversifying first to other parts of Kentucky. And then that's how they ended up in 10 different states. They ended up getting caught in Minnesota, Nebraska, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, um, just running from the helicopter.
That's so cool. It's just so interesting that I just had no idea that weed could even be grown there. I guess it's a weed, but over here, everyone always takes it like it's like this very hard to grow thing, but it just seems like apparently you can grow it in any state in any climate. As long as you have eight hours a day, as long as the light cycle's right. As long as the light cycle's right. And you mentioned the humidity, and that's definitely an issue for, you know, for, for mold, especially when you're, when you're trying to dry and cure. Um, but, but, you know, you can grow. It can be grown. And, and as they, these guys were growing it over the years, Kentucky cannabis began to have a premium in the marketplace. People sought it out. And so they were growing it in Ohio, Kentucky boys growing it in Ohio and selling it to people back to Cleveland and Cincinnati. But instead of selling it from Ohio to Ohio, they brought it back to Kentucky to sell it back to Ohio because it fetched a higher price that the yeah. people from Ohio thought it was coming from Kentucky. I mean, I think our most of the companies in the world do that now with like exporting things to China and then bring them over here, Vietnam, Malaysia, just putting on a, a, a brand or a label on it can uh, put its value quite a lot higher. So, um, so why don't we start from the beginning? Then? So, you know, this Catholic thing, right? So my investigation in the story is, you know, okay, none of them talked, which is incredible, right? And talking about organized crime. Uh, and codes of silence uh, were familiar with Italian omerta, or you know, like these sorts of things. But we also know that Italians notoriously break those rules. And the reason why we know about Goodfellas is because Henry Hill was a rat. Yeah. Right. So um, the fact that seventy guys were busted and none of them talked uh, was really are they family members? Are they what is the how do they know each other? What is that one going on? There? So again, you got big Catholic families. So in some cases, yeah. you got you got groups of seven brothers, nine brothers, like you know, four brothers, two cousins, and an uncle. You know, like these these tight knit units that that every part of the supply chain, every part of the operation was covered by someone who was blood relative. So um, that's how you do it. I mean, you know, it didn't hurt, right? Yeah. But beyond that, it was community in force, like the community, even the straight part of the community did not look favorably on people who uh, ratted out each other to, to, to the law. It just was not done. Um, and, it, and it wasn't done until uh, the Fed started playing really hard with some of these guys after uh, the Reagan drug laws go into effect in after 87, where the feds go to a guy and like, look, you're going to talk to us because here's the deal. Your mother lives in a house that's in your name. And so we can seize that house and make your mother homeless unless you tell us what we want to know. And it was those sorts of tactics that finally started breaking guys. But until the feds went that dirty, uh, guys weren't talking. They would do their time and, and, and keep their mouths shut. And so my investigation from the point of view of the book was, okay, why? Like, why did none of these guys talk and what did Catholicism have to do with it? What was well, the Catholicism is a almost a religion built on secrets, whether from them molesting kids to. Let's not put that into it, but, but the, oh, yeah. the Italian and the Irish organized crime syndicates um, definitely uh, rely on Catholicism as part of the structure of their um of their of their outfit right like 
uh, Catholicism provides a structure uh, for society outside of civil society. There's there's a there's a form to it, right? Um, and and that has something to do with being able to operate inside of a structure without being part of the law, um, whether that's Italians or in this case these country Catholics from Kentucky. Uh, or where are the country Catholics? Are they like Irish? Uh, so um, initially English, run out of England by Oliver Cromwell uh, in like the 1630s to the 1650s to the colony of Maryland. And then after the Revolutionary War, Catholics from Maryland emigrate to Kentucky on Revolutionary War land grants. And the first group of Catholics that come over are led by a guy named Basil Hayden, who brings his still and 60 families. Yeah. And Basil Hayden is known now as it's a, a bourbon, it's a scotch, right? As a bourbon brand. Yeah, it's a bourbon brand. It's good. It's a, a Jim Beam label that's a, a that's a fancy or, or, or overaged version of old granddad, which is a, 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 a variety of bourbon that's been around forever. And old granddad is Basil Hayden. So Basil Hayden brings uh, Kentucky Catholic or Catholics from the colony of Mar or the, you know, uh, from Maryland after the Revolutionary War into Kentucky. And they settle in central Kentucky because navigable waterways were not safe against uh, Native American ambush at night. So uh, Native Americans, not wild, not happy about the white settler. So white men were not a threat to the Native Americans. Uh, they weren't threatened by the men. They were threatened by the women and children, which meant settlement. So when there was a settlement, especially on a river, one of the techniques, one of the tactics to get rid of that settlement was canoe ambush by night. And they would, they would, they would paddle in, murder everyone, burn it down and split. Um, and so it wasn't safe to, uh, this is Daniel Boone, Natty Bumpo stuff, uh, last of the Mohegans. Like if you, all that last of the Mohegan stuff where people get kidnapped, that's all fictionalized things that really happened in Kentucky, uh, like a decade before we're talking about, right? So oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so uh, they settle in central Kentucky on water, but it's the headwaters of some of these rivers. So they're not navigable by canoe. So they're safer. So that's how central Kentucky becomes this epicenter for Catholicism on the frontier. And then for the most part, these Catholics were not slave owners, although there was some slavery, uh, some slave ownership among them. But generally speaking, instead of buying their workforce, they were procreating their workforce. They were making giant families. Uh, and, and these families were then working the land. In one case, uh, uh, Leonard Mattingly, when Leonard Mattingly dies in 1805, he leaves something like 300 living descendants or just something baffling right yeah i can see that well i mean when contraceptive is not readily available also it's probably well, even, have quite a lot of even, well right but even even before contraceptives we're talking about some 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 ex some extreme progeny here like these these yeah. guys and women were really at work making lots of kids like they were not they were not they were not taking it slow they were really making kids um and consequently there's these big Catholic families. And uh, 
and distilling was an inherent part of part of that economy. Um, Kentucky was a river-based economy, which means they were sending product to the port of New Orleans, mostly to sell. And that included whiskey, right? And Kentucky whiskey became a very hot commodity in early America, in part because it was aging on the river as it went down the river and became better uh, as a result. So Kentucky bourbon became a hot commodity. These Catholic settlers were principally responsible for that enterprise. And at the turn of the 20th century, the bourbon industry in America, in, in Kentucky was really vibrant. In 1919, before prohibition takes effect, uh, in my county in central Kentucky, again, a very rural um, uh, part of Kentucky, even now there's only like 25,000 people there. Um, there were nine active distilleries. And on in 1919, on July 1st, nine distilleries were shut down because of prohibition. And all of the Catholic men who worked at those distilleries had a choice to make. They could either um, let their families go hungry or they could break the law. And all of these Catholic men had literally a dozen kids each. And therefore, very quickly evolved into an understanding that you could break man's law without violating God's law. You could be a member of the church and still commit crimes. So long as those crimes were seen as um, uh, noble crimes or, or justified. Yeah, I mean, I uh, mean if, if the government just took away Coca-Cola, all of a sudden, it wouldn't feel like if I was drinking it, I would feel like that big of a crime where I didn't agree with the law being put in place. Especially right. if I, my family was selling Coca-Cola and making it for dozens of years. And, you know, among in the South, Kentucky was the most northern area in the South, closest to Cincinnati, closest to Chicago. And that put us in contact with um, organized crime, yeah. with, with a direct um, supply and demand relationship for what Kentucky was known to make. So instantly there was this um, massive uh, um, bootlegging and moonshining operation that sort of happened overnight. And the whole community just kind of turned a blind eye to it and just let it roll. And everyone was kind of involved. Like the, the, the hardware store selling copper to these yeah. guys to make copper to, to, for their stills, like he was implicated, like he knew what this copper pipe was for, but he wasn't going to say anything about it. He was selling The whole copper. economy is probably propped up on bourbon making bourbon so when they take it away it's like what is their guy i don't know if they're I, the restaurant guy is going to be making money off of it the bars are going to make oh i guess bars won't be around anymore but yeah it's probably right. propping up the whole economy of this town especially if there's not, not that many people and most of them worked in bourbon that's right so it's it's the whole economy right they just took they just took the entire industry away and it's a, an agricultural economy tobacco is still there but you know like all this corn they're growing has to go somewhere and it had been going into a barrel and now it's not. So what's going on? Um, and so I started going back into my hometown newspaper in the archives on microfilm in the library. Uh, I looked at every week's uh, newspaper for the 13 years of prohibition and every week was uh, um, read like a comic book. It was like, Gunfight, gunfight, car chase, gunfight, like revenuers leaping from the running board of one moving vehicle onto another moving vehicle, like, like real deal cops and robber 
uh, untouchables, Elliot Ness stuff. Is this between other underground distilleries or is this the cops or the feds versus uh, the alcohol Fed, makers? Feds versus locals, uh, revenueers, revenueers versus moonshiners. And and there like in the news there was not a lot of turf war stuff. This was all just like everyone had a still, and um, the revenuers would break it up. And if they didn't break it up, it got it got moved by fast car to Cincinnati or to Chicago. Um, and uh, these guys were really good at it. They were good. And um, that's when I started realizing this connection, this historical connection between what happened in the 80s about this cornbread mafia stuff and how it was the result of a, of a, of a cause and effect relationship through time to what was happening um, to this Catholic culture that had gone through prohibition and then understood because of alcohol prohibition how to engage in um, illegal activity in a way that in normalcy in, in a community. It, absolutely. Yeah. That's really cool. So where do they go from here? When do they start going from, I mean, I'm guessing they start find, trying to find some way to make the same kind of money they're making when alcohol was illegal. So then they start going into weed. Like once alcohol becomes legal, if you're making these uh, moonshine places, you're probably not going to be able to make that much money. So maybe you okay, switch so, something, you switch to weed or something. So now you're talking about this generation gap in between Alcohol becomes legal in 33 again. And then weed doesn't start getting grown until 1970. So in oh. between here, there's still a, there's still a vibrant outlaw uh, community. Um, con- and so two things. One, Kentucky after prohibition goes wet by county. So uh, every county votes on whether or not prohibition exists in that county. So almost all the rural counties in Kentucky are dry, except for Marion County, down here where I'm from in the geographic center of the state, is the last wet county to the Tennessee line. So it's like an oasis for everyone in Kentucky who needs a drink, um, who can't get one where they're from. And it's also the rail line goes through when the railroad was still a thing. And there was there was... Uh, for a rural community, a, a significant black population. And th- these factors created a nightclub scene in this little community. And so um, Little Richard is playing piano in this town in uh, 1951, 1952, uh, uh, in a club called the Club Cherry that was managed by managed by a woman named Lucille Edlin. And so this is kind of like the area that everyone goes to party in like their own mini little Vegas from all the rural areas around it. Bingo. Bingo. Oh, okay, cool. And so, so then why, go ahead. No, no, no. Well, I, just want to point out that, I just want to point out that Little Richard is playing at a bar that's managed by a woman named Lucille for two years before he records Lucille. Oh, okay. That's cool. So it was about this Kentucky woman. So did, was she black? Could black people own stuff in Kentucky at that time? She was black. She didn't own it. She managed, yeah, managed it, it, but she but she could have owned it, I suppose. Uh, I don't know that for sure. So then, so okay. So my question here is, what are the benefits versus uh, the problems with making your area wet or not wet? If everyone is it just like all the other rural counties are like we're better than this, but then at night they sneak in to Marion, or are they just like 
I don't know, or, or they like, did Marion somehow pay off somebody in each of these little towns to make sure they were only wet town so they could make the money off alcohol? I don't think they, they didn't have to pay anyone. Uh, the, the Baptist hypocrites took care of it for themselves. Like they were too good for it during the day, but they drove down at night, right? Like, yeah, yeah. like the jokes, the jokes when I grew up about Baptists were like, uh, uh, the reason why you take two Baptists fishing with you is that if you only take one Baptist, he'll drink all your beer. Right? I like it. That's fun. <laughs> or like, or where, you know, uh, back when uh, whiskey was bottled in fifths of, of uh, gallons, like you get a fifth of, 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 of bourbon. Uh, now it's in liters, but, you know, back then they were in fifths. And one of the jokes was wherever four Baptists were assembled, there's always a fifth. Wait, so hold on, hold on a second. So whiskey doesn't come in fifths? Wait, or bourbon doesn't come in fifths anymore? I guess it still does. Uh, but I mean, I, I didn't know if it was an antiquated notion. I still refer to them as fifths, but I think they're still, I think they're marked as yeah, leaders. Oh yeah, I say fifth, like a fifth of vodka. But I was then I was like, have I ever seen, yeah, I've seen a fifth of. Uh, well, you know, you talk about like a, a handle is a 175 and that's a 175 yeah. liter. So yeah, I just I just didn't know if it was still a, a, a term that was that that existed think, out like I just needed to make sure there was a term that made sense because the joke depends on it being a fifth. And I just wanted to make sure that, that it was uh, understood that 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 bourbon was once known to, to be sold in fifths. I didn't know if, no. if it existed that way. But yeah, you know, oh. you get the idea. So then people are coming back from uh uh Vietnam. Mm -hmm. They were smoking weed over there. They have a new idea for weed. They're getting connections all over America from the East Coast to the West Coast. When do they start? Who's Is there like one guy who starts growing it and then getting in his family? Or what? how does it go from there? It's not one guy. It's a, it's, it's kind of, it happens in the same community, like, you know, like a half a dozen guys. And it spreads pretty they friends. Well, they all know each other. Like, you know, it's a tight knit community. They're, you know, they're all yeah, like not many people, not many, like, you know, like it, it, it doesn't, uh, and, and they're all congregating in the same bars and pool halls. Um, and sometimes they're competitive with each other. Sometimes they're cooperative with each other. It depends on the circumstance and the situation. Like, you know, like sometimes they're, you know, not happy with what each other are doing. And sometimes, you know, they've got an order to fill and they've got, they've got a thousand pounds, but they need 1500 pounds. So they go to a guy and, you know, mm -hmm. get some, get some weight off of him to fill an order. Uh, yeah. So, you know, like sometimes it was cooperative and sometimes it wasn't. Okay, cool. Well, then how does it start growing? Keep it, let's keep it going. Where are we going next? Well, so, you know, they assume um, the funny thing in the reporting of it, the, you know, like, they assume that the weed is going to be legal in the second Carter administration. Like when Carter gets reelected, weed's going to be legal. So they just really go balls to the wall in the late seventies. Cause they're confident that all this shit's going to get worked out. Like, and they want to be ahead of the curve. You know, once it gets legal, they already have these giant farms up and running and everything's already ready to go. And they're all good Democrats, like, like loyal to the democratic party. And, and the Democrats are, you know, like, really controlling Kentucky uh, in terms of the machine of the state at the time. And second Carter administration was, was, was what everyone was thinking about. And then boom, all of a sudden 1980, that shit changes and Reagan comes in 
And when Reagan comes in, completely shifts the, 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 the national narrative on, on drugs and cannabis um, to a, you know, very reactionary, uh, racist, um, problematic yeah. uh, point of view. And these guys don't really realize that the script has changed before federal law starts to catch up with them. So that's, oh, okay. So it did, so do you think that before that time, like the feds kind of knew what was going on, but they didn't have the, they didn't have the budget from the federal budget or like the state kind of knew what was going on and they didn't have the federal budget or was like Reagan's administration, like y'all need to bust someone's fucking ass. And then they were like, okay. And they searched and they found these guys. It actually, I think is neither of those. I think, I think the catalyst that takes this thing to the next level was cocaine. So here's here's how this happens these guys are victims of their own success they're growing crazy amounts of outdoor cannabis and they're moving you know like hundreds of pounds per transaction to very large distributors nationwide and they they have access to their supply from harvest time in october november to when it's gone in january february right and then these guys come back in March and they're like, okay, I need another ton and a half. And they're like, wait, 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 you gotta wait. Well, it's not gonna be grown yet. We haven't even planted it yet. Yeah. And their buyers are like, I don't give a shit where you get it. I need 1500 pounds and I need it, you know, like, let's go. Yeah. So it forced these guys to supplement their outdoor growing with smuggling from Latin America and the Caribbean. So in addition to, growing a massive amount they're also coasting around the caribbean ocean going to colombia on the on the caribbean side various caribbean islands and bringing back through florida through south carolina through georgia large amounts of of smuggled cannabis to supplement their outdoor grows for their buyers in these nationwide networks and then when you figure out how much cocaine you can bring in instead of cannabis your money is 500 times as much. And some of these guys got into cocaine and some of them did not. Some of them saw cocaine as trouble and avoided it. Others. And it is. It always is. Now it's a magic. Trouble always powder. comes with cocaine, man. It's a magic powder that turns good people into yeah. assholes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you're dealing with real drug dealers when you do start dealing with co cocaine people. You're dealing with real drug addicts with cocaine. It's uh, and they're, and they're, and they're on cocaine. They're on cocaine. And there's and there's sociopaths like just you know like you would table that for later, but cocaine amped up this whole thing, and a lot of these guys went from being clever and subtle to being completely out of their fucking minds, and and it made the cops pissed off because before that it was a game, it was like a cat and mouse game between these state cops and these country boys, and they were running around on country roads uh outrunning each other doing their thing like i'll get you later sort of stuff so like andy griffith dukes of hazard shit like like you know tag football but cocaine changed it and and it and it pushed police to the point of feeling disrespected yeah they're, they're flaunting their money and they're flaunting their stuff now and they're being more crazy and so then so then the state cops started taking them to feds for fed charges but when they started taking them to the feds for fed charges in the early reagan administration the only sentences were still like one to two years like three years was a long sentence it wasn't until um 
Lynn Bias overdoses on cocaine in 1986, I think, um, early 1987, uh, that changes the national script on drug laws because that's what causes the Reagan drug laws to pass Congress because Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House and was resisting Reagan's drug laws from passing. Uh, Tip O'Neill was a Democrat who represented uh, Boston and Cambridge um, in the House, in addition to being Speaker. And Lynn Bias was a basketball star from the, from the D.C. area who had been drafted by the Boston Celtics. And in his draft celebration party, overdosed on cocaine and died. And so Tip O'Neill's district was directly affected by the Lynn Bias death and then caused Tip O'Neill to cave to Reagan on the drug laws that Reagan was trying to pass. And that brought in the next wave of Reagan drug laws that came into play in 87. And that's what instituted mandatory minimum sentences, property seizure, asset forfeiture, and all these terrible things that we're still dealing with in terms of the drug war. So that's really where things got heavy duty. Uh, and these guys were right in the middle of it and just got put through the sausage grinder. I mean, it's a mixture of heavy law enforcement funding coming in, uh, Lynn Bias dying, people being on cocaine, and it's just a recipe for a downfall. Yeah, you know, like, like all of these sort of variables that all lead to this really bad conclusion. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times, honestly, in all these things I've done, I've found that like normally when people like kind of just keep to their own and like the little crime organizations that they have and they kind of keep them small, no one really messes around. But then when they start, you know, branching out, getting into harder drugs, start affecting people not directly in their little area or community, then uh, normally I feel like that's one of the signs of the downfall. Well, it depends, right? Like it depends on how smart they are and how prepared they are and how like well they see around corners. Because some of these guys who could see around corners still navigated it. Like there's a lot of guys who were involved in this stuff that never got caught. Never. Now were they but you think those were the so they were just smarter about going about it. It wasn't that they were like the ones who weren't killing people and didn't go into the cocaine industry. Well, principally they were people who did not get involved in cocaine. Like that's yeah. what, like the, the one variable that would like, you know, not everyone who avoided cocaine avoided prison, uh, but the people who avoided prison avoided cocaine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that normally it seems to be that way, man. It's not a good thing. I mean, when you make so much money so quick, there's always going to be a downfall. Well, and then okay. you just lose, you, you lose perspective, right? Like things that, things that you were relying, like things that made sense before don't make sense anymore. And it just, um, you end up pissing off people that you don't think you need, but you actually do in fact need those people. And, and you don't know that until it bites you in the ass. Especially when you're on cocaine. Especially when you're <laughs> completely high on uncut straight from the jungle. Yeah. Duffel bags full of kilos from on, of cocaine. Like it's just limited amounts. It's going to rot your brain. You're going to start thinking and saying things and acting in ways that you shouldn't. And probably leads people downfall. It turns out that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, let's go on from then then. So they're building their stuff up. They're getting in different. So the government is uh, getting their first airplane in Kentucky. That's causing them to be pushed out into different communities surrounding there, like Minnesota, Illinois, all those yep. places. When do when does the hammer start coming down or when does violence spike up? What's the thing that really starts to set uh, their the downfall in motion? 
So in my research, I do a bunch of uh, open records requests, FOIA requests with the FBI and the DEA. And the How past- long does that take? Ever. Yeah. It takes forever. They don't want to do it, right? They don't really they don't want, want to do it. Like, they don't want to do it. Um, yeah. I had, you know, train, I was a trained journalist, trained in, in, in open records requests and the problems that they would encounter. And I got put through uh, a particular ringer um, to the point where, uh, not to bore you with bureaucracy, but I appealed to the ombudsman of information and privacy at the Department of Justice, like the top DOJ ombudsman for all of the open records requests. And I was like, I am getting screwed by the DEA here um, on this records request. And uh, the ombudsman's office was like, you know what? You totally are. This is wrong. And fast-tracked my shit after like 18 months of me beating my head against the wall. So yeah, they don't want to do it. And it took me a lot of a uh, crafty letter writing to get that shit done. Um, yeah, I mean, a year and a half trying to get in, and a lot of people are just like, fuck this, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just going to do something else. But instead, like, it was fucking gold. And they were like, you know, like, we'll we'll process these in tranches and send it to you as we process them. So I was getting like three or 400 pages a week once it started rolling, and I got thousands of pages of documents um, from uh, internal task forces watching these guys and at some point, someone in the FBI, the DEA, starts to patch this stuff together. He's like, wait a minute, here's a farm in Missouri where we arrested, where local police arrested uh, seven people. They're all from the same place in Kentucky. They found 20,000 marijuana plants. Here's a place in Nebraska where they arrest three people from the same place in Kentucky where they have 15,000 marijuana plants. And are they kind of having like the same last name and they're like, this guy's from Kentucky. And And they're listing, they're listing them in this document in an outline form with uh, ABCDE. And and there's multiple versions of this document where they're building this list. So it's like L-M-N-O-P-Q-R-S, like this list of, of, of related crimes that, that someone in the federal government's like, typing up like this is a problem this is a problem like just dawning on them the federal government had no clue that this amount of marijuana could be produced domestically before this thing happened uh i mean like uh what was going on in california in the emerald triangle and and also in hawaii was a known thing to dea but the scale of this cornbread thing terrified federal agents because they were like this is bigger then we yeah, because the Emerald, Emerald Triangle is just like a couple counties in Northern California. You're talking about something that's multiple states wide, and that's a lot bigger than one a couple down in Humboldt County in the Emerald, in Humboldt, and then Eureka, and I think Mendocino. Mendocino, yeah, those are the three. So, uh, yeah, it just kind of dawned on them, like, oh shit, there was this like sinking feeling, like, oh, we've been we've been uh, watching like the borders thinking all the cannabis was coming in from Asia and Latin America and the Caribbean, but here it is being grown right under our noses. Like a thread, like a lot of times in organized crime, they find one person or one thing and they can just pull the thread and it just keeps unraveling. And then they get pretty fucking scared because they're like, how do we not notice this giant corporation that was just started here illegally? So um, they have 70 guys. They, they, they identify three of them as their kingpins. 
And all they need is one of these 70 guys to point a finger at one of these three guys to run a kingpin prosecution against them for life without parole. And of the 70, they get zero. It completely thwarts their entire investigation. This whole task force of FBI, DEA, IRS, Kentucky State Police, local police, they've got them all in a room, federal prosecutors, they're working this giant case. All they need is one witness and they don't got it. They don't got it. That's awesome. So in the summer of 1989, federal prosecutors hold a press conference in Louisville where they lay out the prosecution of these guys because they don't have a witness to prosecute it in court. They just lay it out to the media and prosecute everyone to the media and don't give anyone a chance to defend themselves. And the way that they lay it out to the media, it makes the media think these 70 guys had all been arrested basically overnight all at once. Right. Giant sting. Yeah. Yeah. Like like, like in big school buses and loaded them all up, which isn't what happened at all. And so these news vans go flying down to my community and trying to interview people about what just happened. And nobody knows what just happened because there wasn't something that had just happened. But it creates this media frenzy about. So in this press conference was the first time the term cornbread mafia had been used publicly. Uh, Federal prosecutors use cornbread mafia as a way to describe the syndicate of country boys that they can't crack. And the reason they chose cornbread or they're just equating cornbread to country people? I think they're just equating cornbread to country people. Uh, Like, you know, like what flavor of mafia is this that we're dealing with? Um, And so... Uh, that term is really sticky with news editors. Um, it goes on the wire services. It stretches. I mean, it's around. a fantastic name. It's fantastic. They nailed stretches it around the globe. I interview a woman from my town in nowhere, Kentucky, who at the time in 89 was working as an accountant for Price Waterhouse in Sydney, Australia. And she goes to lunch one day and comes back from lunch and her cubicle, her, her co-workers have plastered her cubicle with news stories from the Sydney Morning Herald about the cornbread mafia from Kentucky. And That's she was funny. like, you know, you know, like. Did she know any of these guys? Because you said it was a small area. Was she like kind of like, oh, yeah, Jim Bob. I remember what Jim Bob did. I honestly don't think so because she wasn't culturally of the same uh, a group of these guys. That's why she's an accountant at Price Waterhouse yeah. in Sydney and not <laughs> in the hills of growing marijuana. Right. So, um, but still, like, you know, she can go to Sydney and her hometown and her hometown's uh, shenanigans uh, chase her down uh, halfway around the world. So, uh, you know, that's the, the, the atomic bomb moment where my community once again is portrayed in the media uh, and by law enforcement as this uh, center of uh, nefarious, no good doings. Um, when Hold people- on, can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I broke, we're gonna go back to the media thing. I'm gonna be able to go right back to that. How are they laundering their money? Ooh. That's well, what I wanna know. Or are you so, gonna get that later or? I just didn't want to. Well, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay, cool. I'll do it. And we'll go back. So it's before, like, you know, before 9-11, it's just, you know, cash is cash is cash. Like, bankers will take cash. 
right? Like they were just moving crazy. Oh, is that a thing? I actually never heard about that. Is before 9-11, you could put in as much money as your bank account and they, they didn't trip? They didn't have that $10,000 rule thing? No, that $10,000 rule is post 9-11. Oh, shit. I never knew that. Okay, okay, okay. So, so that. Uh, another thing is a town of my size, you know, like a, ten, a, sound of, that's a, a, a town of 10,000 people with like eight used car lots. Right, way more used car lots than a town of its size, because yeah. a, a used car lot is a perfect uh, engine vehicle for ten thousand dollar transactions on the books. Right, you can move lots of ten thousand dollar transactions through a used car lot's books, um, and then plus uh, you get a bunch of used cars of a certain kind. Like um, a favorite model was uh, like the nineteen seventy nine Lincoln Continental. Um, has a trunk capacity that's just gigantic. And you can fit like 150 pounds of weed in the back of a 1979 Lincoln Continental. And then you can put eight of those on a car carrier. And then you got like 1,500 pounds of marijuana in the trunks of Lincoln Continentals on a car carrier. And then you can take that car carrier wherever, you, wherever it's going. Yeah, right. that's great. That's a great way. To, I've never heard the used car model for laundering money, but it makes sense of anything you can say. You, I mean, you bought it for less than you say you sold it for more and you launder money that way. That's such a great idea. I mean, it's just, I mean, like, and you put cars on the lot, but like what's going on in the books has no reflection on what's on the yeah. lot. Like you're just moving, exactly. you're just moving money. And, but like tracking the cash, like it's impossible to track the cash, especially in retrospect from a group this tight lipped, right? Like how, uh, as a journalist, when I'm writing this book, like how can I find a a fact that illustrates the the level of cash that's moving through the community? And so I found one thing, which was that the Federal Reserve had to alter the armor car delivery schedule to my town because the amount of cash getting deposited in the banks was exceeding the supply of the armored cars moving in and out. Wow. And then, I mean, that's, I mean, you can just follow the money with, with almost anything. And you're like, why is this town? Why is this one little ass town have giant armored trucks filled with cash in them? I'm like, Oh no, it's normal. I think people are just, you know, moonshine, those crazy hillbillies in their moonshine. No one cared. Yeah. Well, it's uh, the same I thing. Wasn't that the same thing that they did with uh, uh, the pills in Western Kentucky? Like the they had all these uh, opiate like uh, pharmacies and they sold more opiates there in like West Virginia and Kentucky than anywhere else in America. I think I've read something about that. I don't know. That's 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 you know that's a that's that's a that's a different problem. But uh, it's you know it's it's and that's a post nine eleven problem, right? So like you have a, you have a whole different set of uh, rules governing that, and plus that's all like. Uh, legal and like in the system as it as it's understood is uh um that um pill distribution stuff whereas this is like all like outside the system um oh yeah i know i just more meant like you can find abnormalities and then those can lead to you finding out more stuff like you can see this town has a shit ton of money coming in in cash so there's probably something weird going on there and why are the pharmacies in these areas giving out 50 times more pills than the rest Okay, so the money was getting laundered through the cars, and banks didn't have the nine eleven thing yet. Well, and then, you know, like, and, and attorneys were getting paid in cash, and like paper grocery bags just filled with cash. And one other anecdote: there's a I, I went to uh, my undergrad at a place called Center College, which is a 
a good liberal arts school here in central Kentucky. Um, and one of these families sent one of their kids to center college when the tuition is a significant amount of tuition, uh, paid the tuition in cash, $20 bills. Like brought it to the, brought it to the admissions office, like funk, here you go. They're probably like, okay, awesome. Yeah. Sick. They're like, awesome. uh, like again, before nine 11, like this is unusual, but okay. <laughs> Um, so, you know, like the money laundering wasn't so acute because cash was still fungible. Like you still yeah. move cash around in the economy even more than you should. And you can't, they learn not to bury cash because buried cash gets brittle. It has a smell. Um, it can deteriorate. So then they started doing things like taking a backhoe, digging a trench, and then getting uh, deep freeze uh, like top mounted deep freeze uh, deep freezers, putting them in the trenches, filling the deep freezes with cash, duct taping them shut, burying the deep freezes filled with cash. Yeah, that's a good one. I had a couple buddies who used to, when it was illegal to grow weed, they would do the uh, uh, cargo. What are those big cargo things called? The big oh, metal container? ones. Oh, yeah, cargo okay. container. Yeah, metal container, and they would dig those. And then they dig those underground and bury them, and then have like a whole grow house underneath there. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. So the great place to you know hide crazy shit because you can't see it. But okay, so the media is getting they they just gave all seventy guys to the media. No one has been charged with anything right now, but the, now they're guilty in the eyes of the public, which can allow. Well, we've all, all been charged, and, and some of these guys are are locked up, but they oh, okay. can't they can't get them for. Uh, kingpin level statutes because they There's only no got them for what they got them for. No one, no one's pointing a finger, right? So, so they got them for what they got them for, but they can't run sophisticated RICO or CCE uh, prosecutions against them. Uh, meanwhile, the media is beating up our community in this way that um, um, feels all too familiar. And it just so I'm in middle school at the time and. My parents and, and the peers of my parents, like the, the, the adult class in my community, uh, I can feel them turn. Like at first, they're angry at the cornbread guys for bringing another bad round of, of news stories into our community about our community. But then at some point, it turns and they're like, you know what? This isn't right. Like, we're not all bad people. Uh, this community is not bad. And frankly, a lot of these guys that are in trouble aren't bad. Uh, and we're being portrayed a certain way by the federal prosecutors and by the media who are totally complicit with the federal prosecutors. And it just turned the nature of the community's um, angst in the situation uh, from an internal uh, concern about people in their community to just being like, you know what, this whole thing is wrong. And like mm -hmm. in the midst of the drug war and just say no and dare and Miami Vice episodes where every drug dealer was perceived, portrayed as just sort of, you know, comic book, uh, bad person. Like these people we were dealing with in our community just didn't fit that model, just didn't fit that type. And as a young person growing up and watching it made me realize that what we were being told wasn't necessarily true, that there was mm -hmm. that there was something here that was different, that was unique, that made this story um, something that, that that stuck with me, and as I left home and, and and got school other places, 
made me realize this was a story worth telling, like that the, the, everyone needed to know what happened here and why, because it was emblematic of uh, the wrongheadedness of the drug war in so many different ways. So who took the brunt of this? Who got in trouble the most? What was kind of some of the, when the hammer fell, what happened? I mean, you said no one snitched, so I'm guessing like two, three years people were getting, or what was happening? Well, I guess the cocaine guys probably got fucked, but. No, none of these guys got busted for the cocaine, even the ones involved in cocaine. Everyone who got busted was busted for cultivation of cannabis. No violent crimes um, associated with these 70 who got busted. Um, uh, Johnny Boone, who's the gentleman on the cover of my book, I believe got 15 years. He was in from 1987 until I believe 2002-ish. Um, uh, some of these other guys... Um, got uh, 20, 25 years. One guy who, who was convicted and then became a fugitive ended up with 35 years. Um, and then uh, another gentleman named Daryl Hayden got caught with uh, un under the three strikes law. Uh, and his third strike was in Michigan with 19,000 marijuana plants, sentenced to life without parole. His sentence was commuted by President Obama. So, so he got out? He's out. He's on Facebook. So did these... Sorry. Did he? So did these guys go home? Like, did they go back to Meridian County and they're kind of yeah. like, I'm, I'm guessing maybe local legendy kind of cool or are they kind of shame or are they kind of like, you know, that's fucking Johnny Boone. That guy was crushing it. But do you think they still probably have a little bit of money left that they might have buried in a freezer thing? They look like they're doing good or are they on real hard times now and kind of really, really screwed up their lives? Okay, so a couple questions there. One, the first one is absolutely seen as local legends, local heroes, local like, hey, like, like if you see them, if you see them across the way, you're like, That's, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, like, like respected and, and revered, frankly, um, uh, for their for their life and their accomplishments and their sacrifices, um, and whether or not they maintain some cash from all that um is difficult to determine uh but it seems like the attorneys ended up with it all yeah i mean a lot of times that can happen for sure yeah. they start getting you pretty bad so was there not much violence going on with these guys they kind of kept it above above ground because i'm not hearing anyone was murdering people so a lot of times a lot of these guys get you know they don't know cops don't know who the drug dealer is then he murders someone then that's kind of the spool that unrolls or the the thread that unru unravels the sweater I'm not saying nobody got murdered, um, but it wasn't like a uh, cartel kind of thing. It wasn't a cartel sort of thing where a bunch of school kids get wiped out or yeah. like uh, nosy neighbors get executed. Like that stuff didn't happen. The people who um, were victims of violence were players of the game. Yeah, in the game. Exactly. That's what I always say, too. And that's a lot of times when people start getting in trouble is when they start getting people that aren't in the game. A lot of times I feel like cops are, you know, they're always it's, on it, but they care a lot more this, when some of this violence was some of this violence was recreational. Uh, I interviewed a woman who was a transplant to our community who came to us from Pennsylvania. She was a nurse at the hospital and um, guy comes in on a Friday night with a gun shot in his boot, in his foot. Right. And. Uh, because he had been playing Russian roulette in a bar 
and shot his foot. And she's looking at his other boot, and his other boot has a bullet hole in it. So she, <laughs> so she starts working on that foot, and he tells her, no, 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 don't worry about that. That's from, that's from before. That's, that's fine. But it's happened before on the other foot. Yeah, you get shot in the foot one time. I feel like guns are going to be something to run away from for a smart life. So, you know, it was, it, 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 it's that sort of thing where violence was uh, secondary. It was around. It certainly was, you know, like when you're dealing in an illegal marketplace, the only way to enforce rules is with violence. There's no arbiter. There's no judge. There's no civil court in illegal marketplaces. And we know a lot of money. There's disagreements. The only way that disagreement is resolved is by violence or the threat of violence. Um, so, well, I mean, certain- but also, like, it makes sense that they weren't out there murdering people when it was such a close knit um, community and a lot of people related to each other. So, you know, a lot of people might have squat, beat each other up, or maybe stabbing here, but they weren't like it wasn't competing gangs who hate each other like to the depths of their souls. It was more just like you know, Uncle seems like Uncle Tony and his friends were over here, and they might have sold weed for a different price or screwed someone over for that and you know and there was some there was some violence and and threats of violence like it definitely was a thing that happened but it wasn't um um front loaded it wasn't top level and none of these guys got prosecuted for violent crime well it seems okay then i mean did it seem like these guys are regretting anything it seems kind of like they may have I mean, the 35-year guy, yeah, but he might have just been kind of crazy where you run away from the law. Though it does seem like if you're going to run the Kentucky Hills and West Virginia stuff would be a good idea. Like, are, did the guys seem pretty much like they're like, yeah, it seemed like it was – are they regretful? I mean, I, 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 never I, perceived, I never perceived a lot of regret, no. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't think so. All right, well, Jim, thank you for coming on. Where can we find you? Or do you have an Instagram or your Facebook? And then where can we get your book? And what are you working on next? Or you just focus on that book still? Great. So lots of good questions. Uh, What I do now is having written Cornbread Mafia, I'm now co-founder of Cornbread Hemp. So we're the only uh, CBD brand in America that makes flower only full spectrum USDA organic uh, CBD products. Uh, California is our second best state in terms of customers because Californians who are knowledgeable cannabis consumers want a USDA organic seal on their cannabis products, and we offer it. Uh, and one, one quick, real quick, because this is one I actually want to ask the whole time, um, and we'll get back to that one. That was what you're working on right now. Is weed legal there right now? Are people still no. growing weed? Do is, I mean is so? So we're growing hemp with a THC level below 0.3. That's federally legal. That's how we can ship it across state lines and, and as an e-commerce company. We're, Kentucky is one of 14 states without a medical marijuana program. So we're operating with hemp flour exclusively. There is no legal cannabis in Kentucky outside of 0.3 hemp. Are, do people smoke weed there? Like if you ever come to California or been here, it is such... The, the whole city smells, the whole state smells like weed. People are always, or is it there like fucking Jim smokes weed, man? He's crazy. Uh, that's the smell of freedom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love it. I mean, I smoke weed since I was 10 years old. But are, do people smoke weed in Kentucky? Do you find <laughs> newsflash? People smoke weed in Kentucky. <laughs> well, I don't know, man. Some people just seem, you know, it might be too big of a faux pas, you know, like some people, like I remember when it was equated to like a level one in uh nevada for a while like 
five to ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's not like uh, you know, it's not Texas. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like, like you know, like, like you know, do you smell it in public in Kentucky? Like, you know, like what's public anymore? Like, COVID's fucked everything up. So, yeah, um, sure. but uh, you're more likely to smell cigar smoke on the street in Kentucky than you are cannabis. Uh, but cannabis gets smoked in Kentucky. Um, okay. So, so cornbread hemp is this um, company that I co-founded with my cousin uh, to um, bring quality Kentucky cannabis products um, to the entire country. And we're the only, um, for instance, our, our CBD gummies are the only full spectrum USDA organic gummy on the market. Um, nice. What's the uh, milligrams on those? Uh, 10 milligrams of CBD, about a half a milligram of THC per gummy. Cool. Uh, we're working on some, uh, from some, some, uh, stronger varieties as we speak to get some more legal THC in those gummies. Mm-hmm. Uh, where can people get these? Do you have a website or are uh, they on any kind of uh, service? Cornbreadhemp.com, uh, at cornbreadhemp on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm at Jim Higdon on the Twitter and the Instagrams. Um, but, you know, like cornbreadhemp, at cornbreadhemp and cornbreadhemp.com. That's where we're at. And, and where can we get uh, your book if we want to learn more about all the details of the Cornbread Mafia? Uh, talk to your local uh, independent book retailer about uh, Cornbread Mafia. And uh, yes, it's on Amazon. And uh, read the reviews on Amazon because they are a lot of fun. Yeah, they, they, they always go pretty crazy there. All right. So Jim Higdon, thank you very much. If you guys want to check out the Cornbread Hemp, go to cornbreadhemp.com or at Cornbread Hemp. And make sure you get, get his book on Amazon. Buddy, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This is a new experience to have someone tell me about something. I like it. A lot less work I got to do. Um, appreciate it, man. Thanks for everything. Thanks for having me. Love talking shop. Uh, would love to get come on as your guest and have you explain, uh, you know, some uh, corner of organized crime that I'm not an expert at. Like, would love to be the other side of this. So some other time you want to you wanna flip the script on this and uh, uh, lecture me on, uh, uh, like, the Amish mafia or, if I, got, I don't know, something else? We got some... Yeah, we got some weirdo stuff coming, man. I'll keep you on the list for guys. Thank you very much, Jim. See you around, brother. Appreciate it. Later.